Well, I hope you're all real happy with yourselves. I did it. I finally did a podcast with my dad. I went to his house first thing Monday morning, set up all the audio equipment in his living room, slammed like three cups of coffee, and had a conversation with him. Most of the stories I've heard of my dad and those Wild West days of Alaska have come from other people. He's never been one to regale his family with war stories. Don't get me wrong, he'll talk some shit for sure. But the underlying message has always been about present experience and teaching. As anyone close to him will tell you, one of his many Scott Liska quotables is, I'm trying to teach you something. One of the reoccurring themes we talk about in this podcast is local businesses and why it's important for the community to support them. How, in the best of situations, they're the backbone of local community because they provide a sense of place and a real feeling of culture and belonging. Such was the case with my dad's snowboard and skateboard shop, Borderline. There was the retail end of things, and then there was everything else. The snow and skate competitions, the indoor skate parks, and of course, the summer camp up in the Glacier Bowl at Alieska. If you were a part of this time, chances are, it holds a very special place in your heart. I know it does for me. It's how I met most of my oldest friends. It gave me my identity and a lot of my most formative experiences. Alright, so on to the company men. Shout out to Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, David North, Crystal Liska, Derek Adolph, and the newest company man, Blue and Gold Board Shop. Shout out to Blue and Gold, which I think I think this is is very uh, is very fitting that Blue and Gold came in at this episode because I wanted to focus on local businesses and the importance of them to the community, as I said earlier. So shout out to Blue and Gold for coming in at that company man tier. So who are the company men, you might ask? Great question. It's based on the crude subscription tiers, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. From the $1 to $4 roughneck tier to the $50 and up company man tier, there's an easy way for you to support this podcast. Okay, so on to this week's episode. This one is really special to me. I really like talking to retired folks because they're in a unique position to imbue hard-won knowledge that only a life of lessons can afford. The difference between those people and my dad is, I don't think my dad will ever retire. I mean, yeah, he's technically retired, but I don't think he'll ever be done experiencing the world, be it as a business owner, a snowboarder, a surfer, or a dad. You get these moments in life where you can tell somebody how you feel and they're receptive to it. They absorb it, consider it, and appreciate it. I've always looked up to my dad and all of his accomplishments. After we finished talking, he wanted me to delete this podcast. (laughs) He doesn't like to be the center of attention. I think that's why, throughout his entire life, throughout all of his ventures, he's always promoted other people. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I did being a part of it. So here it is, my dad. Scott Liska. Mike is hot. Mike's hot? Mike's hot. Is it recording? It's recording. That's what that means, dude. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work! All right, you ready, Dad? Sure. Okay, so I know you've never listened to a podcast, but you've been on every single episode of Crude Conversations at the end of the intro. So what just played, you say, go to work. (laughs) Go to work. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So a lot of people impersonate the way you talk and some of the things you say, like the one I just mentioned and ah, tight. 
Yeah, I'm not sure why, but but you're right. It's to the point where people who have never even met you do the impersonation. Uh, what do you think about that? Like I said, I'm not really sure uh, why, but you're definitely right. People laugh at me all the time. Do you think that they're laughing at you or they're, I mean, it's, it's a pretty iconic impersonation. Well, they think some of my one-liners are pretty funny, I guess. Right? Yeah, I, I, I think so. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, uh, I feel like I mimic your cadence like pretty often, even on the podcast. Like I'll, I'll say like, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. yeah, you definitely do that. And you uh, mimic a lot of my uh, mannerisms. Yeah, I find uh, when I revert back to like my natural state of being, it'll revert back to stuff you say. Carrie, for listeners, my wife, uh, will be like, oh my gosh, that was such a, such a Scott thing to say or do. Yeah, I think all you boys do that, especially Jake. Jake? Yeah, I hear that all the time from Sharon. So Your wife? Like, yeah. He's got borderline legacy, him and uh, Derek in Juno. Keeping the list of legend alive. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like they're doing pretty good. So I'm glad for him. So let's talk about borderline. So for the listeners who might not have ever heard of borderline, it was a snowboard and skateboard shop in Alaska that created an, and nurtured a culture. It's a really difficult thing to actually explain because I think it meant so much to so many different people. But it started in 1989 with you and your brother, Jay, right? Uh, yeah, 1988, actually. What was that like in the beginning? Well, um, I think we were just kind of at the right place at the right time when snowboarding was really starting to take off. And uh, we were just going to open up a shop seasonally just for the winter, sell some snowboards. Didn't really think we'd make a lot of money doing it, but we figured, well, we sell a bunch of snowboards and then we'll get our stuff for free. But uh, shortly after we opened it, as fast as we could order stuff, it would sell. We had all the kids would be at the shop waiting for the UPS man to show up and we'd open up the boxes and people were just buying the stuff right out of the box pretty much as fast as we could order it. But I think it was just a lot of it had to do with timing and being in the right place at the right time. And so what kind of product were you guys buying? I mean, because this was, this was back when, before Volcom, before any of those companies really existed. I mean, the ones that, you know, they were just starting. I was just looking the other day at some pictures of the old shop. It was all neon. The big <laughs> neon thing was popular with snowboarding. And, uh, and then we had a lot of off-brands, too, because there was one big ski shop, Gary King's, that was in uh, Alaska. And they had a uh, line on Burton and sim so we were unable to carry those brands so we we started out uh with gary bracelet sold us some off brands that uh, ended up doing real well like uh hot heavy tools lamar uh clothes like bamboo curtain twist some of that i don't know if you guys uh remember those but uh i remember lamar yeah burnt lamar trick stick heavy tools had the uh what was that trick bone but uh yeah there was some wild graphics and some wild colors i remember that old store on uh on arctic here in anchorage right yeah i remember uh jay your brother would have a big uh a big gulp in the back and it would just be filled with chew spit <laughs> yeah the garbage can too was overflowing with empty beer bottles and beer cans and and chew spit <laughs> And he was always too lazy to empty it. So I'd end up being the one that had to empty that uh, 
like 50 gallon or 30 gallon trash can full of beer bottles, beer cans, and chew spit. I remember he would, uh, or you guys, both of you, would on, on occasion give me money to go to the, the stop and go. It's like a little 7-Eleven that was close to it. And I would go buy candy and a, uh, and a Tales from the Crypt comic. And then I'd just come back to the shop and I'd just hang out and eat my candy and read. And that was kind of my, that was my introduction to Borderline. I mean, I, I grew up in the shop. Yeah, you, you and a lot of other kids, uh, that's one of the reasons I think we were successful at the beginning is uh, uh, we had a big screen TV in there. Well, not like the TVs they have nowadays. I think it was one of those big projection TVs, giant box, and uh, we were playing uh, videos on uh, cassette tapes of snowboarding and skateboarding, and we had couches set up, and uh, a lot of the kids would go down that 7-Eleven and buy candy and pop and then come back and watch videos all day, hang out at the shop wait for the UPS truck to show up. I mean, that's the culture of snow and skate shops that I grew up with. Do you think that Borderline, as it existed back in the day that you created, could exist today? Probably not. Uh, one of the reasons uh, it was so e easier back then was um, you didn't have the internet and mail order and Amazon to deal with like you do nowadays. Um, so more or less, uh, you know, Anchorage is in a huge city. So whatever we ordered and whatever we had in the store, that was the options the kids had. Nowadays, you have everything at the tip of your fingers on the computer. And then living in a small town with a smaller store, it's hard to uh, inventory all the things that people want because you got to make sure you sell through them. So back there in the days, whatever you had in the store, whatever decks you had hanging on the wall, whatever snowboards you had, that's the choice that people in Anchorage had and Fairbanks and Juneau. But nowadays it's tough to compete. And th back then you didn't have the competition because it was so new, you didn't have all the stores. And uh, so the more competition you have, People are undercutting each other in price, and it's hard to make a profit. But I think part of the reason we were successful, too, is um, Jay and I got into it. We didn't really get into it to make money. I was an electrician, so um, I was doing electrical work on the side and, and taking the money from doing electrical jobs and then buying inventory for the store. And Jay was kind of hanging out at the store and tuning boards and renting boards and uh, selling boards. And I was running around making money doing electrical work until it got to the point where it was so busy I couldn't do both and had to make a decision. Either I got to do electrical work or uh, do the snowboard skateboard shop. So that was an easy decision because it was so fun just uh, traveling around the world and snowboarding and skateboarding. So we decided to go full-time snowboard skateboard shop. That reminded me of these videos that Jay let me borrow a while back and I actually got them transferred from VHS to DVD. And there are all these uh, video clips of you guys driving out to Valdez. You guys were at Alieska. I mean, the most memorable one was, um, I forget the exact quote. It's something along the lines of like, you know, this is the beginning of, of a legacy we'll create or something like that. And I was like, holy shit, that's so prophetic. Like, you know, you guys are back in like 1989. There's a timestamp on the bottom of it. You know, those old, old v videos. 
um, those old recorders. And for you to have said that filming Jay back then seems like you kind of, you knew or you were aware of the, the time in which you guys were living and how all this was able to be created. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think we had a plan. I think the original plan was to, uh, we went to Valdez in the spring and it was a hot spring day and slushy and I was a skier. I didn't really snowboard. And, uh, that was 1988. I think so. it was 1988 or 89. Yeah. I think it was 80, 88 when we had that big snow year where it was record snowfall in Valdez. And, uh, yeah, it was a real hot, slushy spring day, and it's hard to ski in that slush, especially back then with the skis they had. And Jay was on a snowboard, and he was just ripping it up, kind of like surfing, making turns and throwing spray. And uh, I'm like, let me try one of those. So I tried one of those, uh, tried that snowboard, and we had, I had such fun that day that I was telling him on the drive back from Valdez, you know, we ought to sell these things. Uh, or actually, I... Sharon, your mom was a stockbroker, and I'm like, we ought to buy stock in these uh, snowboards because all my skier friends and all the skiers are going to try these snowboards, and they're going to want to buy snowboards, and this thing's going to really take off. So then when we got back to Anchorage, we found out that uh, we were going to buy Burton stock, and uh, we found out Burton was private, and you weren't able to buy Burton stock. So then we got the idea, well, hell with buying stock. Let's just open up a store and start selling snowboards. Like I said, part-time just in the winter when the electrical work slowed down, the construction work slows down in Alaska because of winter. So then um, that's where we got the idea to open the first shop. Because you couldn't buy stock in Burton. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't expect to make a lot of money at doing it either. Like I said, it was going to be more of a hobby, more, you know, get some snowboards, maybe, you know, sw sell 20 snowboards a year, and then we'd get our stuff for free or cheap. Because, you know, I think snowboards back then were two, three hundred bucks. That was a lot of money to us back then. So I'm like, well, we'll sell snowboards. Probably learned that from my old drug dealing days where uh, <laughs> I, I sold dope, too, but not really to make money just so that I would get mine for free and wouldn't have to pay for it. <laughs> so I kind of had the same idea with the snowboards. Let's sell a bunch of snowboards and then we'll get all our gear for free. But like I said, it was just the right place at the right time and things took off. So. I think part of the reason we were successful there too is because um, we didn't really get into it to make a bunch of money. We just got into it to have fun. And uh, any money that we made, we put back into the store, making it bigger and better and having more inventory and to uh, promote snowboarding. Mm -hmm. You know, that's when the contest scene started and uh, started building skate parks. So we built a little ramp in the back of the shop with the money we made from selling stuff. And this was the, the Arctic one, the original one, right? Yeah, the Arctic one next to Gold's Gym with, a, with all the steroid muscle heads next door. And we had the <laughs> <laughs> little skinny skateboarder punks next door. And they were like sleeping under ramps and stuff too, right? Like they would, they would stay the night there sometimes? Yeah, when we opened that warehouse space and built those ramps, yeah, people would spend the night because we couldn't pay to keep somebody to uh, keep it open. You know, because it, it didn't make any money. It lost money, matter of fact, but it did help promote the store. But uh, we didn't want to pay somebody to be there all day long. So we it was just an honor system where you come into the shop, pay five bucks and then go skate. But yeah, some people would just stay in there overnight and sleep under the ramps. 
<laughs> in front of that store too, we did a trampoline contest where we'd set up a trampoline and have bands playing and music going in the parking lot. We'd do uh, people jump on the trampoline with the snowboards and do tricks. Had some pros come up. I think Jimmy Holopoff. I don't know if you remember him. But yeah, yeah. Of he course. came up for one of the tramp bashes. So we had guest pro snowboarders. Did he that, come that up? We had pro skateboarders at the skate park. Noah Salaznik came up. A couple other guys. Did Jimmy Holopoff come up specifically for the trampoline contest? Yeah. That's awesome. Just for the tramp bash. And who, who uh, did that call, that phone call? Uh, I think we were selling the snowboards uh, company that uh, was that Mr. All Snowboards. That was one of our first brands. Okay. Uh, I believe Holopoff was a pro rider for him. So actually the company is a promotional thing to sell more snowboards, sent them up and paid for it for a promotion. You talk about kind of like the extracurricular, uh, the other things besides the shop that, that you got into. There were skate parks, there was a competition series, and then later on there was a snow and skate camp up at Alieska, right? In the Glacier Bowl? Yeah, borderline camp. Yeah. That was a blast. That was a highlight of a lot of kids' uh, year. But how that came about is, um, well, that was because of you and, um, and your brothers. Uh, you boys, I was uh, paying to send you down to High Cascade and Wendell's. Actually, Wendell's is where you were uh, uh, with Tim Wendell. But, uh, and Sandy Spitzer. Yeah, and Sandy. But I'm like, wow, this is crazy. Uh, you have to pay for airfare and then send you down and then pay for camp. I'm like, why don't we just do a camp right here at Alaska and save that money mm -hmm. on the airfare and just do, I mean, we got plenty of snow here. Why can't we just copy what they're doing down there and uh, do it up here at the top of the Glacier Bowl? So that's how that camp idea got started. So I went down and kind of checked things out at High Cascade and seen how they were uh, operating. And then, uh, yeah, we put that camp together and it started out small and got better and better each year. I remember the first time I ever went there with you, um, you were like, all right, you're going to work at one of these camps. And I remember going and talking to like the head digger with you. And I was like, I was like 11 years old. And you're like, yeah, he'll wake up at 6 a.m. or 5 a.m. And he'll go up there and dig. Like you were, <laughs> you were, you were trying to like, uh, I guess, sell me as a, um, like you were my agent basically. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then, um, you know, he was, he was pretty apprehensive about the whole thing, I think, because I was so young. But then we went over to Wendell's and we met up with Sandy and she was like, you know, we'll find some work for him. And then she kind of, she really like took me in and kind of became my camp mom. But I, I remember that, that first meeting at High Cascade and I remember just being like, oh shit, what am I getting into? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Wasn't your first job working at the Snack Shack? <laughs> yeah, I worked at, uh, I was like a coach in training, uh, CIT. And then uh, they stuck me in the snack shack, yeah. And then eventually I was in the ice cream shack and then a, uh, a coach for a little while. It was a lot of fun. I would, I would go to borderline camp from, was it June and July? And then August, I would be at Wendell's. So all summer long, I'd be at camp. Yeah, that was nice. Yeah, ours was two weeks. Yeah. Two weeks, 20 days. And uh, beginning of June, we wanted to do it as soon as the kids got out of school while we still had good snowpack so we could ride the high-speed quad up on the top in Glacier Bowl before the snow melted. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we went down there on that mission. Well, one, we were so broke and uh, I was so cheap that I was trying to get you a job there so I wouldn't have to pay. 
And then I ended up doing trade out with uh, Tim Wendell. I found out he loves to hunt and fish. So after his camp late in August, he'd fly up to Alaska and I'd take him over and drop him off on Montague Island for a week. And he'd camp out with a bunch of booze and a bunch of food, a bunch of ribs and beer and wine. And, <laughs> and he'd just hang out and uh, relax with uh, no cell phones, no computers. And just to get away from all the hustle and bustle from uh, running that camp all summer with all those kids. I remember when we went down there too, I was talking with some of the diggers and stuff, ended up recruiting uh, some of the guys like Jubal and Bagler and them guys to, that were digging in High Cascade. Uh, I said, you guys want to come up to Alaska and, and dig pipe up there and build jumps and rails? And uh, that's uh, how we ended up recruiting those guys. And then uh, I talked to the cat drivers there to see how they were building their jumps in the, in the half pipe. And, uh, but it was hard to work with Alieska because they were so anti-snowboard back in the day. Mm -hmm. We used to call them Ali Alcatraz yeah. because they, <laughs> they hated snowboarders. So I was like pulling teeth trying to get them to uh, do anything for our camp. But uh, eventually they seen how successful it was and um, they were forced to uh, kind of uh, get more involved and help us make the camp better. You know, going off of that, what kind of roadblocks did Alieska put up? Because now there's, there's no snowboard camp up there. There hasn't been for a long time. Well, some of it's to do with the weather, too. We had the spell there where we were having, uh, we didn't get that much snow. And we had early spring and uh, there wasn't any snow. So uh, we couldn't run the lift. So we ended up, remember that a few years there, I had a, uh, all of my snow machine buddies uh, bring their sleds up and tow people up to the top of a... Uh, Glacier Bowl. Yeah. And uh, it was just hard to do uh, the camps with, with no snow. Then I remember, too, uh, went down there at High Cascade. I seen they had skate parks, so you snowboard all day and then skate at night. So then uh, Dan Coffey, that local kid out there in Girdwood, uh, uh -huh. and a couple of his friends had a little chicken shit uh, skate park in the tennis courts that the community had uh, donated um, a couple tennis courts for a skate park. But they just had some uh, small little launch ramps and things like that. So uh, I didn't want to get involved with the community. So I, I just went there in the middle of the night and uh, bought a bunch of lumber with money we got from selling snowboards and skateboards and uh, built skate park without anybody even knowing. And, and, and then like the community shows up one day and here's this nice skate park and all the kids are skating and they're like... Uh, they didn't know what to do, but I just figured if I'd ask them, it would just be a nightmare can of worms because some people really love, you know, people that had kids that skated loved the skate park, but then the other half of the town hated the skate park because they said that people were down there drinking and doing drugs and this sort of thing, which really wasn't the case. It was just in a park where, uh, you know, people were doing that stuff anyway. They, it wasn't the skaters. That's how the skate park got started down there in Girdwood. One of the things you've told me with crude is, <laughs> is I've had these ideas and you're just like, just do it. It's always easier to apologize than it is to ask for permission. Yeah. That, well, you see a lot of people that have these great ideas, but they just don't have the balls to follow through with them. So they just go through life. And then, then as you get older, then you have the regrets. Like, so it's better just do it. And if you fail... Just get back up, dust off, and try again. So let's talk about King of the Hill a little bit. Can you explain what that was? Uh, well, what I remember about King of the Hill, how that got started is that um, 
uh, there was a guy, what Mike Kozad from uh, St. Lodge there and um, back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, uh, did the World Extreme Skiing and Snowboarding Competition. And uh, I think he got into some financial trouble or who knows when. I wasn't that involved with him, but uh, ended up, uh, I think, going bankrupt or having to leave town or something like that. So uh, they weren't able to do that competition anymore. So then uh, we had uh, Sean Farmer and Nick Parada and my brother and Richie Fowler um, came up with this idea with the King of the Hill and... Uh, I decided to get involved and help out with it because uh, Alaska West Air had the helicopters and the ski planes down there for that World Extreme Snowboarding Competition. And they said that they weren't going to bring them down there because they wouldn't have any business because no people would show up because they didn't have a contest. So we were like, well, we'll put on a contest. So that's where we came up with the King of the Hill idea, just just so we could bring people to Valdez so uh, that they wouldn't pull the helicopters and the planes. And then we wouldn't have any way to get to the top of the mountain. So once again, it was because you wanted to go snowboarding. <laughs> right. Yeah. It wasn't to make money, just to have fun. All the things we did, and I think that's part of the reasons for success. It was, wasn't really to make money. It was just to have fun. So any, any money we ever made just went right back into it. And that was the same with the King of the Hill. I ended up like running it for the first few years. I was the person that lived in Alaska. So, um, you know, uh, it was basically three of us that started it, Sean Peterson, uh, Nick Parada, and myself. And I was just, the, those guys lived out of state. So uh, Nick was kind of the PR guy, did the talking. And then Sean was the computer guy that did all the proposals and drum up all the sponsors with the industry people. And then uh, me being in Alaska was the one down in Valdez putting together the hotels and the bars and uh, uh, the avalanche people and the doctors and uh, but after a few years of doing it, it cost me so much money. It, it just ran in the hole. And, uh, and I was getting kind of nervous about it, too, just the liability of the crazy stuff people were doing mm -hmm. during the contest, you know, just to win a T-shirt, hucking off cliffs and cliffs <laughs> and landing in the rocks. And I'm like, holy smoke, somebody's going to die doing this. So then I kind of got out, out of it after the first few years and then ended up just being a judge for a few years. And that was kind of fun, a lot more relaxing. And so this was a three-day snowboard competition in Thompson Pass, right? So there was, what, what were the days? Well, the first day was a speed day. We had a timed run from the top of the mountain to the bottom. And we'd time to see who was the fastest, king or queen. And then we'd have, um, second day was a freestyle event. So it was the same thing, a course from the top of the mountain to the bottom. But there was a uh, jump set up and cliffs. And it, it was uh, judged for freestyle. And then the third day was extreme who was, uh, had the gnarliest, smoothest line and cliffs. And, and then the king or the queen was the one that could do the best of everything. The best of all three events. Do you remember any um, memorable winners of those competitions? Any, any memorable runs? Any memorable stories? Oh, yeah. There's lots of them. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, yeah, yeah, Steve Clausen. I know he won at a few years. Uh, Matt and he, Goodwill. And he owned uh, Wave, or he owns Wave Rave in Mammoth, right? Steve right. Clausen. Okay, right. The guy's unreal, um, smooth as butter. But uh, 
there was a lot of professionals from all over the world that came from it, and uh, including uh, Japan. We had a lot of Japanese rider. That was a funny story. One time we had this uh, Japanese rider, and uh, so I'm at the top of the course explaining to him about the course, and uh, we had gates set up so that you didn't go over and get onto the glacier because there was a lot of crevasses, and we didn't want anybody to fall in a crevasse on the glacier, so we had gate set up. So I'm explaining this at the top of the course to the Japanese guy and he's smiling and shaking his head. Yes. Like, uh, he understood me, but he didn't have a clue what I was saying. <laughs> so he jumps out of the gate and heads straight for the glacier and across the crevasses. Cause it was all untouched powder over there. Yeah. Uh, but it was just kind of funny cause I thought he understood what I was talking to him. Cause he was smile, had a big smile on his face and shaking his head. Yes. But he couldn't speak any English. What happened to him? Did he just, did he? He get, made it. Oh, yeah, okay. he had the run of his life all on track powder out there because he weren't allowed, supposed to be going out that way anyway. <laughs> so maybe he scoped it already. Maybe he already knew what was over there. Yeah, I just don't think he understood me. But yeah, he was looking <laughs> at that and go, probably wondering why nobody was going over there and tracking up that on un, track pow. Yeah. You know, I was, I was too young to have gone to King of the Hill, but I remember going around running errands around Anchorage with you one time that sticks out in my mind was when we went to uh, Dooley's, that, that costume shop over on 15th here in Anchorage. And we would go there and pick up the king and queen outfits and like the, um, the thrones. And I remember like putting those in. I, I was too young to even help you, you know, pick up the thrones. But I remember them being in the back of your truck. That's my King of the Hill experience, and it's so tiny, but it was it was so cool because I, I always like kind of made up the the narrative in my head. I'm like, where are these you know these outfits and these thrones going to? And then as I got older, I you know I realized what it was. Yeah, it was awesome. We had like real swords. It would give the the winners, and I think Sean was going to have it set up where there was a big rock, and then uh, he was going to rig up the sword so you weren't able to pull it out unless you were. Uh, the winner and then have a release on it so you're able to pull the rock out of the sword i think he took that off some movie didn't he yeah the the sword and the stone yeah sword and the stone <laughs> <laughs> i forget who told me this story but it was a valdez story i'm not exactly sure if it happened during king of the hill but <laughs> these people were driving behind you and you were in your cadillac and uh it had just dumped you know i mean it had it was a you know big snow year um, and how, how it goes on that road to Valdez, you have these huge walls of snow and you're driving along and all of a sudden you take like a hard turn, like right or left, depending on what side, right, it would be right. And you just plowed into the wall of snow and then you were driving inside the wall of snow and the person behind you is like, holy shit, what's going on? You were like, you were getting pow with your Cadillac and huh. all of a sudden you burst out further along after driving in the pow <laughs> making turns yeah making yeah turns. i love the pow <laughs> there's another sequence that ended up being in one of the videos was uh did a drive-by shooting where we uh that's another thing about valdez back in the day is everybody had guns and we had a lot of drinking and bonfires and guns and uh we did a little skit with the cadillac where people jumped out of the trunk and were shooting out the passenger uh windows of uh uh the Cadillac automatic weapons. They filmed it all with a helicopter over the top. That was uh, Pete Iverson's dad brought that little mash uh, bubble copter. It looked like an egg beater. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that made it in the skit. 
That's awesome. Don't don't you have a story with uh, Pete Iverson's dad where he picked you up in the McDonald's parking lot in Palmer? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pete's dad was awesome. So uh, we were going up to Hatcher's Pass, and uh, we were going to do runs, and he was going to bring his hel- he owned the helicopter, and Pete, you know, he was on our snowboard team, so he's like, yeah, my dad'll fly us up to the top and we can do runs up at Hatcher's. So I'm like, yeah, let's get on it. And uh, so Jay was driving the Cadillac, but uh, I said, well, I'll go with you so we can show you where we, what runs we wanted to take and what mountain and where to meet. You'll go with Pete's dad. Yeah, with Pete's dad. So he's like, well, I'll come by and pick you up. So <laughs> he uh, landed on the corner of our neighborhood and I ran out of the house and ran down to the corner and there was a little park there and he landed the helicopter in the park and I jumped in. And then we're flying up to Palmer, where Hatcher Pass is, and uh, we passed the Cadillac. And he's like, it's going to take them guys a while. You want to stop for breakfast? And I'm like, yeah, I guess so. So he just lands uh, in Palmer at the McDonald's in the parking lot. <laughs> and I'm like, are you sure this is all right? And he's like, why not? <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> and everybody's in the McDonald's looking out, wondering what's going on. Helicopters landing in the parking lot. We get out and get a big breakfast jump back in the heli and then he drops me on the top of the mountain and shred back down to the Cadillac. Uh, that must've been, uh, probably mid nineties. Okay. 95, 96, my guess. You've told me that story. I think this is the, cause I've interviewed you a few times for different reasons, like either print or, you know, video. And you've told me that story a few different times. And it's always like, you know, that was a really, that was a really special experience. Yeah, it was. I'll never forget that day. Another story I'll never forget is when um, Jay ripped his kneecap in half during the King of the Hill on uh, Billy Mitchell. It was towards the end of the day. I think it was his second run. And, and Billy uh, Mitchell's a run, right? Yeah, Billy Mitchell's a great run. It's one of the higher peaks there in Thompson Pass. So we had our extreme day set up there. And um, during Jay's run, he uh, aired off this cliff and tumbled and it was so steep he was picking up speed on the tumble he said and he so he jammed his board in to stop him and when he did there was so much pressure on the board it ripped his kneecap in half so he was stuck on the side of the mountain during the competition we had to get a helicopter and do a helicopter res- rescue on the side of the mountain gnarly yeah so that was one time jay almost died another time jay almost died uh one of the scariest times of my life i just remember my heart beating uh I, I thought Jay was dead when uh, we were doing a run off of Goodwills and uh, I'd went down first and I was at the bottom of the run at the LZ and I was looking up watching Jay come down and he aired off this knob and landed on this large face and I just seen it fracture and uh, he's coming down on this fracture that fractured above him both directions and uh, and then uh, the snow started breaking up into chunks and he's freaking ollieing and ollieing and then it, it came funneled down into a narrow chute and uh, he disappeared, was completely buried underneath the snow. And I'm thinking, oh shit, where the hell are we gonna start digging for him? And then it came down to the bottom of the chute and the snow kind of dissipated and I seen his head pop out. Then I seen it pop out to his waist and then he ollied out of it, and freaking rode out of it at the bottom of the mountain. But I just remembered thinking down there, he's dead. Where the hell, with all that snow, where the hell are we going to start digging? 
Jeez. But he said that he was riding down. Uh, it was like getting uh, riding a wave and getting blown out of the barrel. And he had his hand. He said he was holding it, trying to just balance on his board and holding his hand to high up in the air so that we would know where to start digging for him, see his fingers sticking out of the snow. But he could feel that his hand was completely under the snow. So he was buried underneath the snow that deep, but just balancing on his board and riding the same speed with it and was able to uh, pop out of it at the bottom. Did he seem scared? Yeah, we were all scared, but not that scared. High-fived at the bottom, jumped back in the heli, and we did some more runs. Holy shit. <laughs> Wild West days. Yeah. It's not like that anymore. No. Back, we were doing helis for like 20 bucks a run back in the late 80s, early 90s. And uh, I don't think they even invented peeps back then. So We had no peeps, no shovels. Just uh, Chet, you know. Simmons, that uh, Vietnam pilot that you hear so many stories about that had the, yeah. the Bowie knife and the 45 strapped to his waist. Uh, yeah, you, we just point, say, drop us off there, Chet. And he, the more gnarly the landing is, the more stoked he was. Like a lot of times he didn't even land. He just kind of hover, hover on the peak. And uh, we'd get out one side and the basket uh, for, was on the other side with the snowboards and he'd pull back out. And then we'd cross the knife edge and then... Uh, He'd pull back in and we'd get the snowboards out and then do runs. But I look back on that. I'm, I'm glad that uh, I was still alive because that was some pretty gnarly stuff we were doing. How'd you meet Chet? Uh, like I said, he was the helicopter pilot back then for Alaska West Air who had the uh, first helicopters and first planes with uh, skis. Did all the flying down there in Thompson Pass. They're over um, there, Alaska West Air. They fly fishermen and people hunting in the summer. And then to make a few bucks, they'd bring their uh, helicopter and plane to Valdez in the spring. And so you just went into an office and you were like, hey, we want to go. Yeah, that was an old landing strip from when they were doing the pipeline back in the 70s. Uh, they had a camp up there in Thompson Pass when the pipeline was being built. And um, they had a nice runway there. So they had some... Uh, temporary building set up at the runway and that was their office so we were taking off and doing uh beaver runs with skis and a uh, helicopter chet was their pilot i've heard a lot of stories about vietnam vets um but was there more than one or was it just chet um well there's a couple other characters down in valdez you got all kinds of characters down there but uh, i don't really know their story you just know chet's yeah i just know chet so you, kind, you, you alluded to this a little bit when you guys got into Borderline. It wasn't necessarily about, it was never about the money. It was about having a good time and snowboarding and everything. Do you think money has a tendency to ruin good ideas? Yeah. Well, I think people can sense it. And I think uh, if uh, you're doing something that just everybody's having fun and everybody's contributing, like, Jay and I didn't uh, weren't successful by because of us. It was uh, because of everybody. Everybody got involved. Everybody chipped in. Everybody was having fun, and and um, you know the sport was progressing so fast. There was always uh, activity, always excitement, always something new. I think p people can sense that. Uh, you know, when there's someone's trying to make money. 
it's not as much fun. But it seems like all the events we did kind of just revolved around not making money necessarily, but just to have fun. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have to get a real job, go back to doing electrical work. You know, it was just having such a blast, but I didn't really care about having money or putting money away. But so as far as like the snowboard camp, never really made any money, but it was a blast. And then, uh, King of the Hill, same thing. It was just fun. And, and, and then, uh, later on we did the Montague cup, which you might, you might come to later, but that was like the surf contest we did out there yeah. on Montague Island where it was surfing, fishing, and hunting. It was just, just for fun, just to have to get together and have a bunch of people have a good time. I think borderline and everything it included was rooted in anti-establishment. Um, it was us against them, and that worked for a long time. I can safely say that that mentality is still a part of you, definitely. <laughs> uh, it's a part of me, absolutely. And it's still a part of a, a lot of other people who were around when Borderline was around. But I think Alaskans were different back then, at least in our little corner, our little niche of, of uh, you know, our culture. What do you think? That's part of the Alaska spirit, the final frontier, the last frontier. I mean, that's why a lot of people end up moving here from down in the States is they want freedom and independence. But I mean, skateboarding, that's always been kind of anti-establishment. And then snowboarding was the same thing, especially when it first evolved. So uh, I definitely fit right in. Yeah, you did. I remember you, you dyed your hair blue one time. And then what did you shave? Fuck right in the back. <laughs> uh, board. Oh, board. Board. It was board? for borderline. There wasn't enough room to do borderline. So okay. Board. Okay. <laughs> I guess it's different in my head. <laughs> but that was, that, was pretty, um, that was pretty 90s. Pretty like of its time. Yeah, that's when everybody was dyeing their hair back then, wearing the big baggy pants and... Uh, that was that time that we went down to the Nationals where uh, USASA, we bought the borderline team down there where we had all the kids from different age groups and we rented that van. Mm -hmm. And then on the way up to the resort, we got the hotel and everybody had a bunch of hair dye and dyeing their hair for the, for the Nationals. And uh, I remember uh, getting a bill for that, for staining all the uh, bed sheets because <laughs> everybody had fresh dyed hair and it was just bleeding uh, out of their hair into the bedding i don't know if you remember that were you there when everybody's dying their hair i don't think the, so because the... i've seen pictures of it oh okay yeah that's why you don't remember it then it must have been the year before you went i think i'm remembering when jake and derek probably got back from that and they were like all right we're gonna we're gonna dye coban's hair and then so i was walking around with Black eyebrows and bleach blonde hair. <laughs> yeah. Blonde was the big thing there for a while. Bleach blonde. <laughs> so to round this out with Borderline, like what, what do you think led to the end of it? Well, I think what led to the end of the Borderline was uh, for myself, uh, probably got a little overextended to where we had at 1.5 five different locations. We had Fairbanks, Juno, Anchorage, and then we had the indoor skate park. We had that rental shop at Alieska. And uh, we had a couple of years there where it didn't snow. So if you're selling snowboards 
in retail and you don't have snow by Christmas, you're pretty much done because the Christmas season, you know, Alaska's lucky because we have uh, basically two Christmases because we have the dividend check comes out in October and uh, everybody gets that thousand dollars or whatever it is. And uh, a lot of the kids come, go and buy snowboard setup because all the new snowboarding stuff's coming in. And then we have Christmas, of course, where everybody's shopping for Christmas. Well, if it doesn't snow by Christmas, people aren't bu buying snowboard winter stuff. You know, they're buying other things. And that's actually where you make the money to get you through the lean time. So uh, when originally we put the shops in Fairbanks and Juneau, my thinking was, well, if it doesn't snow in Juneau, at least it'll snow in Fairbanks. If it don't snow in Fairbanks, it'll snow in Anchorage. But that for a couple uh, winters there, it didn't snow in all three locations. So then we end up getting stuck with inventory. And the companies are like, well, just whenever you sell the stuff, you know, just pay us. And uh, after they get off the phone, turn around and uh, turn you into collections. Well, now you got collection fees. You can't return the stuff. Nobody wants to buy it. The following year, everybody wants the new stuff and you got this old stuff. So... It's just hard once you start that spiral down, it's hard to pull back out of it. Mm -hmm. And you end up getting stuck with inventory that nobody wants. And uh, that was part of the reason I did it in. But at the same time, you had the internet come along and you had mail order like CCS and, and uh, people ordering online. And then everybody started selling snowboards in town, all the ski shops, and they showed up at Costco and you know, like I said, once everybody starts selling the same thing, nobody makes any money. Mm -hmm. The market got saturated. When I think consumers in general are extremely nearsighted, I still have people come up to me and I'm, I'm sure you still have people come up to you that ask, you know, like, have you ever thought about bringing Borderline back? Have you ever thought about doing a snowboard camp? You know, it was so great back then. And in the back of my mind, I'm like, well, why, why the fuck didn't you support it then? You know, because that was... That was the backbone is, is the community. The backbone of any local uh, mom and pop is the community in which it lives. You know, you can't go and support something like Zoomies and expect them to do a snowboard camp. I mean, Zoomies has been here for how long and they haven't done shit for the community, right? Right. But kids don't think like that. But you're absolutely right. Uh, kids, you know, that age, uh, snowboarders, and skateboarders are always looking for something new, too. So when a new shop comes into town and opens up. Everybody wants to be the first one to run over there and buy something and be the you know, kid in the neighborhood that's, you know, look what I bought. I got something here nobody else has. And then parents, they don't give a shit they, about, you know, support in the community. They just, uh, if they can save a nickel, they're going to buy it somewhere else. But yeah, Zoomies uh, moving in uh, didn't help. And that all happened at the same time between the mail order, bad winners, and Zoomies kind of did us in. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that you maybe you would have done differently? Probably uh, would have been to downsize earlier, streamline. I mean, the shop in Anchorage uh, was by far the moneymaker that actually supported Fairbanks and Juneau. So, you know, if we'd have closed those other locations sooner, it probably would have helped out. But another thing that happened, you know, we'd done it for, what, 17 years I'd been doing it. You get burnt out. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd bought that boat to do uh, surf trips. Mm -hmm. The Viking. Yeah. 
bought the Viking to do surf trips and we started selling surfboards and wetsuits. And that's another reason you don't want to get uh, spread out too thin. So if you try and do it too much, it, it's, it's hard to, for business. But uh, anyway, back to the boat. Um, I was out exploring, finding new uh, surf spots. I'd never been surfed before and fishing and hunting on the boat. And uh, when I'd get back to town, you'd have all these problems. And uh, with the, the computer, shop. yeah, bill collectors, personnel problems, and drive you nuts and kind of got spoiled out there with um, just being alone and nobody around and mm -hmm. computer not working, cell phone not working, kind of ruined me. <laughs> Getting off the grid. <laughs> so I'd get back to the mall and go, oh shit, get me out of here. I got to get back out to Prince William Sound where get back <laughs> on my boat. So I was probably gone a little more than I should have been. If you own your own business, you got to be there. 24 seven or, or you're getting ripped off. I've, I've done a lot of thinking about borderline and I think that, cause I've asked you this question before, just like in normal conversation, like, do you think that borderline could exist again today? And the way that I think about it is there was a definitive beginning and a definitive end to borderline. So it was like this open and closed chapter as opposed to looking at it like, oh, you know, it was a failed business. Cause I, I personally don't look at it like that at all. I think that the way that people still talk about borderline, the way that it went out and then the way that there is a, uh, an obvious, I guess, villain in the story, which is say, you know, uh, zoomies and CCS. And I mean, whether they realize it or not, I mean, they, they borderline's not even on their radar. But the way that I look at it is that um, it was uh, very much a, in its time and place. You know, you couldn't have it exist today. It had to have been started in 88 and it had to have ended in 2006. I mean, when you look at uh, snowboard shops and the retail business with snow and skate shops, I mean, they're being romanticized now. You know, you have that new movie. I don't know if you've heard of it. Mid 90s. That's totally like romanticizing the entire like skate culture of the mid 90s. And so now it's like we're having this like, you know, sense of nostalgia uh, about that time. And we're, we're finally at, at the age where we can look back and appreciate it rather than, you know, it's, it's hard to appreciate something when you're in it, you know? You're absolutely right. <laughs> I don't know what to say to that one, Cody. <laughs> well, we I have to give that one some thought. <laughs> I remember one that we were, we were hunting on Montague and, uh, we were on the dinghy and we're like motoring in to the shore. And uh, I forget what I was saying, but I was just like, just talking. And you know, you're like, hey, hey, shut up. <laughs> you're like, shh, the deer aren't going to come if you're talking. He's like, you're too fucking analytical. He's like, when you're hunting, you have one thing on your mind, kill. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way my brain works. I'm uh, I'm just like focused on one thing, yeah. but I don't do anything half-assed. If I'm going to do it, I do it right. But I am I focused, uh, zoomed in on one thing. I, I don't do very well if I get too uh, scattered out, think about too many things at once. I get spun up. Yeah, I put myself in this mode when I when I was doing crew when I was doing like the physical magazine. Because I would get spun out thinking about the, the end goal. You know, the end goal is a full magazine with 
anywhere between 12 to 20 editorials. There's photos. There's, you know, the whole thing that makes up a magazine. And I would just get spun out thinking about all that. So what I, what I started doing is like small goals. Today, I am going to hit up, you know, Josh Boots. And I'm going to talk to him about his editorial, his forward for issue three. And that will be my focus for this day or this week. And then at the end of that week, I should be pretty happy with what I accomplished, those small goals. And then after a while, all those small goals amount to a full magazine. And so getting back to what you were saying about, you know, keeping things a little bit more focused. Right. I'm that same way. Right. Otherwise, uh, with me, I, it ends up being half-ass if I try and doing too much at one time. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm that same way. So yeah, going off of that, that last question about Borderline, I know that I, I personally hold a lot of animosity toward Alaskans for their, for their lack of support of Borderline in that, kind of in that moment, and then the lack of foresight that they had to be able to support something that ultimately would give back to the community. I, I mean, it's taken, taken me a long time to be okay with that. I, I feel like I feel like you're you're a little bit of the same way. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I, I kind of had a bitter taste in my mouth after going bankrupt because I pretty much lost everything. You know, because I got overextended and, that, and then I borrowed money to kind of save it, thinking, well, next year it's going to snow. So I took out a loan, mortgaged the house, and uh, I couldn't save it. And so... Uh, yeah, I had a bitter taste in my mouth about snowboarding, skateboarding, but in a way, uh, that's how the surf company developed. So luckily I was able to hang on to the boat. I didn't have to give it back in the bankruptcy mm -hmm. because I owed money on it. Well, the bank didn't want to repossess it because the bank don't really want a boat because then it's their headache. So ended up keeping the boat. So I was able to, uh, you know, take people fishing and hunting and make a living doing that and surfing. But it's hard being in Alaska and, and make, making money doing surfing because you just have the weather and the conditions to deal with. And I think that Alaska isn't always the first place people think of when they think of surfing. Exactly. And it's hard to find surfers with money. <laughs> Most surfers... The reason they're good surfers is because they're surfing all the time. They're not working. Yeah. <laughs> so they don't have money. But I'm able, I was able to do uh, some great trips with some professionals. And uh, that helps support and pay for the boat when you have sponsors paying for the trip. And you're able to uh, make a go at it. So we've kind of almost talked about this a little bit. You brought it up a few times. Alaska Surf Adventures, your, your next venture that you went on to after Borderline. Can you tell me about that? Uh, yeah, I guess I got into it a little bit already. But when we had the shop there, uh, somebody came into the shop and had a picture of deer hunting on Montague. And uh, Wally Boss was working for us. He was a surfer that grew up in California, surfed his entire life. And uh, he's looking at the picture of the deer and he's like, holy shit, look at that wave in the background where is that? And the guy's like, Montague Island. So then uh, I remembered that a few years later when I was able to buy a boat. And I'm like, I'm going to go look for that wave out there at Montague Island because I heard they were surfing in Yakutat and Kodiak. So uh, I knew the water couldn't be too cold. 
So I was uh, out looking around and found that wave at Montague. And that's what gave me the idea to start the Alaska Surf Adventures. Kind of got off track there too, didn't I? No, no, no. So, so you had Alaska Surf Adventures and um, you have your boat, the Viking, and you're out in the Pacific Northwest kind of exploring all of these, these different breaks, right? And then also mapping them and kind of keeping this log of all these, these different surf spots that you'll eventually take these people to, right? Right. Starting out, I had a smaller boat and then I realized, well, you want to go farther and rougher seas and you want to bring more stuff with you. You want to bring your surfboards and your fishing poles and your guns. So then I bought the bigger boat. And then once I bought that bigger boat, I realized I couldn't afford fuel for it. Big boats burn a lot of fuel. So then I'm like, well, I'll start a business and get people to chip in for fuel. Same thing, just like the other things we started. It wasn't really to make money. It was just stuff. Uh, to get people to chip in so we could afford to have a boat and then we could all go surfing. And then we sold the uh, surfboards and the wetsuits and everything in the store there at the Diamond Center. So then you're able to write it off on your taxes, mm-hmm. the surf business. And uh, we just drove around exploring and finding new breaks. Which is pretty awesome. I mean, every single person, for the most part, that has gone out on the boat with you has returned i mean it's it you call it a trip of a lifetime and i i grew up kind of going out on that boat and i still am amazed every time i go out so i mean that's got to mean something yeah i hear that all the time is uh people tell me when they're leaving that it's one of the best trips they've ever been on so that makes me feel feel pretty good inside do you ever feel like you're you're almost chasing that, that feeling that you originally got with borderline, you know, when you initially made that decision to be like, Hey, let's pull the trigger on this Jay. Like these snowboards are pretty cool. And then you did it and then you saw the response from it. And it was, you know, it was the community coming together and being like, Holy shit, like this thing is cool. And then maybe you, you have realized the same thing with Alaska surf adventures. Like people are like, Whoa, this is actually really cool. And we want to get behind this. Yeah, I think that's part of the excitement and the adrenaline is uh, also being um, the first one to come up with a new idea. That's one of the ways to be successful, too, is to come up with an idea and do it before anybody else copies you. Because there, there's definitely some people out there copying you, which, which I think, uh, you know, the best form of flattery is impersonation, right? Right. So now you got three surf companies running out of Seward. But, um, yeah, I think we were the first, one of the first ones to start selling snowboards and one of the first ones to build indoor skate park in Alaska and one of the, uh, do the summer camp, King of the Hill, the Montague cup. Yeah. It's a pretty long resume. Yeah. And it was fun. Sure beats work. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so, so whether it's borderline or Alaska surf adventures, is there something you're looking for or, or looking to accomplish? Uh, well, like I said, um, looking to accomplish, not having to get a real job. Uh, I had a midlife crisis. You know, I was in what my thirties when we opened borderline. Okay. Well, um, right out of high school, I worked two and three jobs as an electrician and got married and had a kid when I was 19 and bought a house and, uh, just worked 
worked every day, worked weekends, never got to enjoy and have fun with life. And that, so when I opened up the snowboarding shop with Jay and was snowboarding and having fun, I felt like I had missed out when I was younger. Because when, uh, when I was uh, growing up too in Spinard, we were poor and didn't have money to do a lot of things. So the reason I do a lot of those things is just so I don't have to uh, put the tools back on and go back to work do the things you enjoy i remember that's what your mom would uh, say how come everything you like to do you make it your job i'm like i don't know i guess because i can i don't know why everybody doesn't do that yeah <laughs> i think that's the that's the ultimate goal is to make your your passion your job for sure right one thing that i realized about myself and i i, I feel like i definitely got this from you is i'm really good at the what with a business, you know, what, what do I, what is the business, you know, with crude, it's, it's trying to tell like this authentic Alaskan story, you know, through the voices and through the stories of through genuine Alaskans. And what I'm not very good at is the business portion of things, <laughs> you know, I, I'm getting better at it, but it's trying to make my passion, my career in the same way that, you know, I guess I learned from you with Borderline and with Alaska Served Adventure and everything that you've ever done. Yeah, I'm the same way. Uh, so like you, you have, uh, you have the ideas and the artistic uh, motivation and, uh, but it's hard to find uh, a person that can do both. So you might have to find a partner that knows more about the business part. So you can just focus on, uh, your job and what you're good at yeah and that's what i need to do that's part of the reason that uh borderline failed is um i never had uh anybody keep track of the finances matter of fact this is a funny one so my bookkeeping worked like this if i owed people money for say a order snowboard order skateboard order i would wait until they call me up and say, hey, when are you going to pay this invoice? And I'd say, well, how much is it? And they'd tell me the amount, and I'd have the checkbook right there, and I'd write a check, and then ask them what the address is, and I'd send the check out until the check started bouncing. And when they started bouncing, I quit writing them for a while. So that was my accounting system back then. And we were doing three, $3 million a year, <laughs> and I was just running it by the seat of my pants because I knew <laughs> nothing about running a business. I grew up, I was an electrician. Yeah, I work construction. So, uh, yeah, I'm lucky to make it. Uh, we were lucky to make it as far as we did because uh, I had no idea what I was doing. I was just out having a good time with everybody else. Yeah, I, every time that I hear a story about your business wherewithal, I, uh, I'm like, oh, shit, that's me. <laughs> like I'm doing that same shit. I mean, not, not to the, to the grand extent that, you know, $3 million a year, but as far as like, uh, kind of doing things by the seat of your pants in order to do things like this, you know, have a conversation with my dad about all of the, the great things or all of the influential things that he did in Alaska. You know, this is, this is the type of stuff that I want to do. These, these podcasts, you know, it's not the business aspect of things. It's, it's the, the creation of the content. Right. I was lucky there in a way as because uh, your mom is good with finances. And uh, without her, we never would have made it as far as we did. 
because mm-hmm. she was good at handling the money, but she was unable to do it full time because she's got her own thing going also. So um, it was some exciting times when you look back at it. When I sat down with Jesse Bertner in the course of the conversation, he's like, dude, what are we going to do about these borderline days? You know, he's like, you've talked about it. Uh, he's talked about, or, you know, he's, he's talking. So he's like, I've talked about it. He's like, Mark Landvik has talked about it. It's like, we got to do something, you know, to, uh, to preserve it, you know, for posterity. We need, we need this story to, to be able to go out there. And in my mind, it's so other people realize that it can also be done. It could be done not just in Alaska to make this community better and to help create like this, this niche culture that betters people. But, you know, you can do it in Montana. You can do it in New York. You can, you know, whatever. Right. But the thing is, is the people part of that community have to realize that 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 they have a responsibility, too, and they need to support it. Right. Yeah, it's awesome. You're putting this all together, Cody. Okay, we're, we're nearing the end here. Got a couple more questions for you. Great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so, so much of what you've created and continue to create has that sense of youth. There's like this youthfulness about it. Uh, Mom has always joked that you're a 16-year-old stuck in an old man's body. <laughs> this perpetual 16-year-old. Now that you're older, do you feel like there are limitations to what you can do? Yeah, just the past few years when I turned 60. Uh, kind of hit me, it's slowed down. But like I said before that, a lot of the reason I was so energetic is, uh, is was the midlife crisis story I was telling you about where uh, uh, being young and not having any money and uh, not doing things kids do, just growing up and being responsible at such an early age. Uh, when I got the opportunity to screw around i really screwed around and <laughs> didn't want to grow up and then you know snowboarding you have that adrenaline rush too so you're always looking for that next rush and uh, that keeps you younger but as i was getting older too i realized uh if you stop it's hard to get it back mm-hmm. so in my mind i'm like i can't stop i just got to keep going as hard as I can until I can't go no more. So uh, I think I had a pretty good run. I think you still have a pretty good run, dude. You know what's funny? I I was about 60, yeah. But, uh, and now I'm into surfing because it's a little easier on your body than snowboarding, you know? Snowboarding is hard on your your, uh, joints and your back, especially if you're trying to keep up with the kids. where surfing is uh, healthy, but you get good exercise, mm-hmm. uh, but n- not quite as impact on your body. So I put this on Instagram, the crude Instagram story. I said, uh, you know, we'll be interviewing Scott Liska. And, um, you know, are there any questions that you would ask? And I forget who, I forget who said it, but they sent us a message. They sent crude a message, uh, like a direct message. And they were like, you know, that dude's a legend. I saw him do a a front side three at alieska when he was you know in his 40s and then i was like hell yeah you know he is a legend and i was like i saw that dude do a front side seven off kitchen wall cat track when he was 50 (laughs) and the guy was like holy shit you know so like you said you know once you stop you you lose it so you got to keep going 
got to keep going. And in my back of my mind, too, I was hoping to uh, be inspiration to other people growing up. Because a lot of people, you know, they get, they get to adulthood and uh, they quit doing stuff and get responsible. Uh, so I'm hoping that uh, I set an example, and I'm pretty sure I have, to keep uh, other people to keep going. Yeah, I, I think you have too. I mean, I don't stop. I keep going. I mean, I still have to go to work later today. Yeah. <laughs> so in, in that uh, same Instagram story that I was telling you about, there was also a lot of people who just wanted to thank you for creating something that was so special to them. And I thought I'd, I thought I'd let you know that. That's awesome. But I, yeah, I get that all the time now. I run into people and uh, uh, they're really appreciative and tell me how what a great part of their life it was having borderline and, and it always makes me feel good. But like I say, it wasn't just me and it wasn't just Jay. It was uh, everybody that so many people uh, helped contribute, you know, like, like you said, Jason Borgstead and, and Jesse Bertner and then all you boys and uh, all the Juno boys and Mark Landvik and the list goes on and on and on. Fairbanks I, boys. Yeah. The Fairbanks crew. Uh, without everybody helping out and being a part of it, it never would have been successful. And I appreciate all those people too. That's awesome. Well, thanks for being on the podcast, Dad, even though I know you don't listen to them. <laughs> <laughs> all right. You can support local grassroots journalism at patreon.com slash crude magazine. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's a platform that makes it easy for you to support content that matters to our community for as little as $1 a month. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Intro music was produced by Alcoda Beats. 